Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Probably everyone is familiar with the term stages of dying because of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work and because it's been pretty well popularized by those people dealing with the dying fad. It's very popular to die nowadays. But actually, the stages of dying are stages of loss. So they're not something that's happening to someone else. They're what's happening to us right now. Also, they're a process that we're going through in the course of this retreat. We all come in with a lot of denial. The stages of of dying, a much overused term, are really just, of course, states of mind that occur during the process of letting go, during the process of acknowledging loss and coming into a place of seeing your relationship to loss in a more spacious way. So that loss becomes something you're learning from, something that has reminded you once again 
of the freedom of letting go, of the freedom of being open. They're the stages of converting your experience from tragedy to grace. From confusion to insight to wisdom. From agitation to clarity. So they may be the stages that one goes through in the loss of a loved one, a son, a daughter, dear friend, a mother, a father, a pet, a divorce, a job, some place where some there was where there was some place you could always go for support and it's no longer there. And it may be some part of your self-image that's fallen away. It may be the loss of your position as vice president of Acme Brass Company. It may be the loss of the use of your left arm because of a brain tumor. It might even be that your meditation's not going so well. The loss of who you thought you were as I'm almost there. Essentially, it has a lot to do with ego death, death of who you think you are, how you think the world is. So the parallel between the loss of a loved one and the ego death, the death of separation, the death of those things that block the heart, that keep us from coming into our true nature, that parallel is easily made. Traditionally, as Elizabeth has defined the stages of dying, their denial and anger and bargaining and depression and what she calls acceptance. Denial is a very important stage because it's a stage that almost everyone is in, in one place or another. It's that hiding. It's the thing we've spent the first three days of this retreat uncovering, opening, letting go, acknowledging pain, acknowledging our grief, acknowledging our feelings of loss, loss of how, who we thought we were, of how we thought it was going to be. This culture and many cultures have greatly supported denial. They've made a big business of denial, the cosmetic business, the hair dyeing business, the funeral business, toupees, corsets, denials of decay, denials of change, denials of loss of youth, change, denials of change. Han Shan, a very wise and light, humorous, and very insightful poet of many centuries ago, wrote this about change and that denial of decay. He said, a curtain of pearls hangs before the hall of jade, and within is a lovely lady 
fairer in form than the gods and immortals, her face fairer than a blossom of peach or plum. Spring mists will cover the eastern mansion, autumn winds blow from the western lodge, and after thirty years have passed, she will look like a piece of pressed sugarcane. That does something to your sex urge, doesn't it? <laughs> of course, in the traditional idea of denial, in the traditional in the sense of this dying, this context of dying, we usually think of the patient who goes in and is given a terminal prognosis. You have cancer, you've got a year to live. And the thoughts, there's got to be some mistake. How could this couldn't be happening to me? There's a problem with the lab analysis or your microscope's not working right, or you know, somebody you've mixed my specimen with somebody else's specimen. That's somebody else's biopsy. That kind of denial. Looking at denial like that is a form of denial. It's not recognizing our own denial. It's not acknowledging and accepting an opening past, that place where we are denying death and its importance. The ever-presence of the importance of opening, clearing getting into a deeper communication with ourself and the beings around us right now. A patient who, patient, friend of mine who was terminal, said that what she understood terminal to be was that when a person is told by a doctor, is given that prognosis that you are terminally ill, she says the only difference between terminally ill people and the other people is since the doctor who says you have a year to live might be killed on his way home from the office. And often those prognoses are very inaccurate anyhow. She said, all that terminal really means is that at last you acknowledge your mortality. People who are terminal agree, yes, I'm going to die. And the rest of the people don't. That's terminal. So the denial in our culture is so great friend of mine's mother was dying. He called me. He said, she's in the hospital. It's a fellow who's done a lot of work on himself. Really beautiful fellow. Called me. He was at the hospital. He said, I'm thinking of bringing my mother home, but won't that cause my father a lot of grief, a lot of extra pain? But he was also very aware that by doing that, he also allowed his father and his whole family to share an amazingly important experience in their group life, in their individual lives, and in the life of his mother. And it was okay to bring death home. So they brought his mother home. And she went through all her changes of the body getting lighter, cachexia that goes along with cancer, the loss of weight, the loss of control over the bladder, the subtle personality uh, fallings away, the ego reduction that we spoke of a little bit yesterday, the regression. He, went, he shared, this whole family shared this incredibly beautiful experience with his mother. I was coming through New York and I wanted to go say hello to his mother. So he picked me up and 
um, went to visit his mother in a uh, upper middle class suburban neighborhood. Big houses, you know, three, four, five bedroom houses. Probably that sell for eighty, a hundred thousand dollars now. I don't know what property values are out there. It was the only house on the street with death in it. And our neighborhood was extremely aware of this. I mean, it was quite a shock. I'm sure all the neighbors, as they walked by, knew that that was the house with death. Yet somehow, there was a lot of joy in that house that must have been very confusing. He said at first the neighbors came over and they were very consoling. Oh, what a shame. Oh, how terrible. Oh, how awful this must be for you. And then they started coming over and listening more instead of talking seeing how come death was acceptable in this house. It was very strange to them. How come there was so much love and so much intense sharing? How come everybody wasn't cringing and hiding under the table? How come everybody didn't have the television set on all day or their head in the icebox trying to avoid? How come people were growing? How come there was so much light there? It confused the de conditioned denial. His mother died. And uh, I wasn't at the funeral, but it was described in detail to me. The room in which she was laid out had, was sort of like two rooms. It was though this room had a more of an archway and was separated into two spaces. In one room, she was laying in the open casket for people to come in and say goodbye finish their business as they would. In the other room, there was sort of a, where people were gathering. As the situation was, in one room was his mother. Everybody else was in the other room, talking about how their lawns were doing, what they saw on TV, how business was. The denial was so incredible. It's like here was death and life. They had no place where they could bring life and death together where they could find that place inside of themselves, which was death, which made life so precious. Their denial of death was a denial of life. Much more suffering in that room than in the rooms or in the, in the funerals we hear of people like Ramana Maharshi or Nimkaroli Baba, where there's the sadness that he's gone, but the incredible delight that that being has gone home. The rabbi made a talk about what a wonderful wo woman Sylvia was and how she had raised beautiful children and been a good wife, had participated in many charitable, useful things, had been a good person. And then her son, as his part of the ceremony, got up and he read this from Suzuki Roshi. This is from Suzuki Roshi, a Zen master, this fellow right here, who at the time these talks were made was dying of cancer. Interestingly enough, as was the woman who edited this book, I don't know that at the time these talks were made he was dying of it, but the cancer I believe was already there. 
his attitude was very open, and we'll speak a little more about him. This book has nothing to do with his dying of cancer. I almost said it has nothing to do with death, but of course, everything that has to do with life has to do with death. And the place where those, both of those considerations, life and death, melt away, and there's just being. And that's what Zen is, just being. Don't quote me on ever having said what Zen is. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi. I went to Yosemite National Park and I saw some huge waterfalls. The highest one there is 1,340 feet high, and from it the water comes down like a curtain thrown from the top of a mountain. It does not seem to come down swiftly as you might expect. It seems to come down very slowly because of the distance, and the water does not come down as one stream. It comes down instead separated into many tiny streams. From a distance, it looks like a curtain, and I thought it must be a very difficult experience for each drop of water to come down from the top of such a high mountain. It takes time, you know, a long time for the water finally to reach the bottom of the waterfall. And it seems to me that our human life may be like this. We have many difficult experiences in our life, but at the same time, I thought, the water was not originally separated, but was one whole river. Only when it is separated does it have difficulty in falling. It is as if the water does not have any feeling when it is one whole river, any separateness. Only when separated into many drops can it begin to have or express that feeling. When we see one whole river, we do not feel the living activity of the water. But when we dip a part of the water into a dipper, we experience some feeling of water, and we also feel the value of the person who uses the water. Feeling ourselves and the water in this way, we cannot use it in just a material way. It is a living thing. Before we were born, we had no feeling we were one with the universe. This is called mind only, or essence of mind, or big mind. After we were separated by birth from this oneness, as the water falling from the waterfall is separated by the wind and rocks, then we had this feeling. You have difficulty because you have feeling. You attach to the feeling you have without knowing just how this kind of feeling is created. When you do not realize that you are one with the river or one with the universe, you have fear. Whether it is separated into drops or not, water is water. Our life and death are the same thing. When we realize this fact, we have no fear of death anymore and we have no actual difficulty in our life. After the ceremony, <clears throat> Richard was with a few friends and he left. One of the people with him turned to him and said, you know, you did a very extraordinary thing in there. He said, what did I do? He said, in that whole ceremony, you're the only one who mentioned death. 
Denial's pretty strong. There's a person dead in the next room. There's everybody there saying goodbye. Denial. The anger stage we're all quite familiar with. That's part of the confrontation. Not to be judged, but to be open to and seen as the value of you're coming up against something and it's frustrating. Things aren't the way you want them to be. Frust there's desire, blocked desire, frustration, click, anger. And there you are, you're angry. You're angry, why am I going to die? Why not the guy down the street? He's always been an awful person. He doesn't mow his lawn, yells at his kids, cheats on his income tax. Why me? That anger. And there's the rage against God. How could you do this to me? I've been so good. I go to B'nai B'rith every week. I give to UJA. I'm just a wonderful person. Why, I work with the dying. How could you do this to me? But it's also the anger at, how come I'm not free? How come this is so hard? It's that feeling of loss that we acknowledge that's always been there. The anger of a lifetime focused in that moment, in any moment of loss, in that loss of divorce, in that loss of a child, whatever the loss is, that place where it's just an outrage, where the impotent rage of a lifetime surfaces. Incredibly painful. Anger is such an isolated, painful experience. To be with someone who is raging and to be an open space into which that storm can manifest, can pass, that's the work with the dying. That's the work with yourself. To be able to be with somebody who is on fire with rage and not have all those places where you're on fire sweep you away, block your compassion. To be able to acknowledge your own anger, your own rage in a mind that it was willing to accept and not judge and be present for yourself in that manner. The next stage that's spoken about is bargaining which we're all familiar with too. None of this is very far from home. In the quote, terminal patient, it's if only I can stay alive, I'd build a new wing on the hospital or I'd stop eating chocolate or I'd meditate two hours a day, really I would. But the actuality of it is that most people who make bargains don't keep them in the, if they're terminally ill and all of a sudden they have a, a remission. Elizabeth tells a story about a woman she was working with who was very sick and needed a very strong regimen of chemotherapy in the eyes of the people, the healers she was working with. And they said, no, you have to go right now. And she knew that there were possible side effects would not allow her to go out of the hospital again. And she was getting quite weak. She said, no, please put off the chemotherapy for a few more days. They said, no, we have to start it right now. You're just too much in jeopardy. She said, on Friday, a few days from now, my daughter is graduating 
from college. If only I could go to that graduation, just this one time, just this thing. I promise you, her bargain was, I promise you, you let me go. Whatever you need to do, you can do. So they agreed, okay. No. Got the wheelchair, got the chauffeured car, took her to the, the graduation, college graduation. Quite a bit of trepidation on the part of the doctors that she might well die while she was out of the hospital, while she was gone. 10.30 in the evening, the car comes back, the doors come open, she comes in in the wheelchair. Everybody's real glad. Oh, how are you? Come on now, up to your bed. We're going to start the chemo in the morning. Every, and we're so glad you're back. Now just get up to your bed and you'll just be here for a while. She turned, she said, but doctor, I have a son too. Always more, always a little something extra. I'm bargaining. Interesting about that bargaining because when that bargaining falls away, When you start being present and taking responsibility, everything becomes more acceptable. There's a presence to your life. We're constantly bargaining. I'll do this. I'll sit if I can get enlightened. And that's a lot of our, you know, I'll be, if I, only I can be a better person. Actually, it's interesting about bargaining because bargaining comes from a place of real vulnerability where you're really open. I'll do this if only that. And that openness can be real precious. One woman we knew of who had terminal prognosis and they said she was going to die very soon and then it'll be a few more months and a few more months. She went through about two years of being terminally ill and having that openness that comes with nothing to lose that openness where you, things are falling away and the bargains are seen as bargains and you're starting to just be right where you are, moment after moment, opening to this uncontrollability, giving you a kind of freedom. She had a complete remission. She's alive now. And when she looks back at those years, she said, I was never so alive as when I was dying. Never so open never so awake. There's more bargaining, more denial, more frustration in us when we don't open to how things are to change than we do. In that opening, there is a, when you really open, that frustration and that bargaining didn't work and then there's depression. Now, it should be remembered that it actually isn't sequential. Although I'm making it sound like sequential, in your own experience, one moment you're in anger, another moment you're depressed, another moment everything's fine, and then you're in denial again. It's the same. Don't separate yourself from the dying patient. Don't separate your life from your dying. It's one thing. What is now is then, as Kabir said in the poem yesterday. What you find now, you find then. You don't have to go into any, you don't have to look at anyone else to find their experience. You can look inside of yourself and see how that is for you, how your conditioning manifests. Depression, we're so afraid of depression, and yet in it, there's an incredible healing. 
there is a real confrontation and a real seeing I'm powerless in the face of this thing. We're all terrified of depression. I know that in a period of my life where things seemed overwhelming, there was a, a lot of darkness. There was that depression of nothing's going to work out. Nothing's the way I want it to be. Actually, that depression is one of the places where you are starting to open to how things are, seeing you can't control the universe. And it can lead to a very spacious, very open place. But it's painful because parts of you are dying. The patient looks at himself, that part of ourselves looks at itself and sees that here it is and here's the condition. And how do I take responsibility for it? It's just all too much. We really need to honor each one of these stages because they're ourselves. In depression, a person is so open to love. You don't try to talk a person out of depression. You just love them. You just be with them. You're just present for them. It's a heavy emotion. You don't try to rationalize it out. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, everything is going to be okay. But the hand, the contact of one human to another is more important than all the words you can say. Unless those words really come from a place in your heart where you can touch your own depression and there isn't a separateness. Depression is not a very verbal space. It's a space of deep feeling and the presence you manifest for yourself, you'll be able to manifest for another. I sense in, a, in some ways that depression is like a fear of darkness. And I came across this piece of a poem by T.S. Eliot in some ways reflects that darkness, that depression, that fear of death. Oh, dark, dark, dark. They all go into the dark, the vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, Industrial lords and petty contractors, they all go into the dark, and dark the sun and moon, and cold the sense and loss the motive of action, and we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God, as in a theater the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tomb stops too long between stations and the conversation rises, and slowly fades into silence. And you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when, under either, the mind is conscious, but conscious of nothing. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love 
would be love for the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing, whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild time unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. The depression takes you beyond the depression, the openness takes you into what has been called acceptance. In my experience, much of what has been called acceptance is actually a kind of resignation. Working with a fellow, he came in one morning, he was in the hospital. He said, oh, I feel like I could sleep forever. He said, do you want to sleep forever? Do you want to die? He said, I don't want to, but I guess I'm going to. That's not acceptance. That's resignation. We've seen a lot of resignation in the movies. The fellow in the wheelchair last night, the fellow said, this is a great life. That was the kind of depression that verges on resignation. It's just, there's nothing I can do. I'm just buried under it. And that resignation is a place where a lot of us live out our lives. It's that life of quiet desperation that Thoreau talks about. It's a place in all of us where we're willing not to do the work, where we'll just cope, which means hang in there by your teeth, which somebody said they were willing to bargain that if it, nobody made it too bad, they wouldn't expect it to be too good. That's resignation, a resignation to life, a resignation to death. It's as long as it's a tie, okay. Not too much light, not too much darkness. Very desperate, very empty life, but a place where many of us reside often and a place where certainly when people come to the end of their lives, particularly if they're not in a supportive environment, if they're not allowed to trust that intuitive flash that they may be receiving, that everything is going to be okay, Resignation. Those are the stages as they're generally outlined. But since more is better, we have found that it isn't, if we're going to play the stages game, it isn't five stages, that it's eight. And that those first five stages are predominantly psychological and are relating to death as something outside of yourself. If I could oversimplify it, and it is an oversimplification, the difference between psychological and spiritual, in the psychological work, we're dealing, and the schools of psychology are dealing with the objects of mind, with the states of mind, with the mental objects, the thoughts, with the emotions, with the feelings. The objects of mind are what is being related to. That's psychological. When you start relating to the space in which those objects are happening, that could be called the more spiritual 
you're starting to see the spirit in which those objects are occurring, the spirit of those objects, how they relate to each other. Therefore, you start seeing the process of those things, not identifying with each individual thing as who you are, seeing the process of their interrelationship, the patterning, the change, the natural unfolding of the process that we are in space. Generally, if an object arises in the mind, if we think apple, apple comes up in mind, and the mind immediately takes on its shape. Mind becomes apple. It implodes, becomes hermetically sealed around that mental object, that thought. At that moment, your mind is apple. But the truth of the mind is not apple. The truth is that's a thought that is not an apple. But we have come through long conditioning to have lost a lot of our ability to tell the difference between the thing and the thought of the thing. The thing and the symbol of the thing. The reality and the concept. And we have traded off a lot of our direct experience 99% of our time, we're thinking our life instead of being it. We're reflecting on what's going on instead of hearing it, tasting it, smelling it, seeing it. We're thinking our life and not knowing we're thinking. We're lost in the dream. We're dreaming our life. Dream, dream, dream. This dream, that dream, going for it, going for it. But when the context becomes that an apple can arise in your mind and you can keep the mind open and notice apple as content, but notice that that apple is another bubble passing through the vast space of mind, that it's a thought of apple, not an apple. One of the Zen teachings is that the mind takes the paintbrush and paints an orange stripe, paints a black stripe, paints an orange stripe, paints a black stripe, draws the outline of tiger around it and jumps back in fear. That's what we're constantly doing. Taking the thought, the thought of tiger is not a tiger. The thought of tiger is a thought. So real acceptance becomes the sixth stage, becomes starting to relate to the process that we are. It's acceptance, and it's the first time where you start taking death inside of you, where it's not the enemy, where you're not relating to f with fear, you're relating to fear, where you're starting to relate to the mind instead of from it. You're starting to keep spacious with whatever arises. Even with death, moments of being spacious with death, being spacious with life, seeing the process of change, that everything ends, begins and ends and begins and ends, including this life, this thought, this idea of death, and this stage of acceptance where death is taken inside, where death is taken within, where it starts to fall away in its separateness from life. There is often the place where people are starting to see that they're not this body. That may be the first spiritual recognition and terms like spiritual sort of catched my throat because there's something real arbitrary and conceptual and it's just another bubble. But the reality is that there's more space to acknowledge who you are. There's more space to acknowledge your spaciousness, more room to be, to be, to be, no one to be, just being.
more space. You notice each one of these stages is getting a little more spacious, more spacious, more spacious. That even the depression, in a sense, is more spacious than the bargaining. One person said that at this place of acceptance, as they were tuning in on the process, they could see that they were creation in the constant act of becoming. That kind of acceptance. It's pretty incredible. The next stage, you'll be sick of stages if you aren't already. But it gets more interesting as we go on. Is when we start, and this is our, our life. This is this retreat. This is our unfolding. This is the death of the ego. This is the path of purification. This is the dying of the body, the dying away of separateness, the dying away of those things that block the heart from its extraordinary nature, from its reception of how things are. And that's when we start to identify with being more than who we thought we were. You could call it identification with the soul. It's a deeper recognition of the process. You could call it identification with a karmic bundle. I'll tell you a story. We were talking about Behan the other day who had come into the confrontation with her pain after a year and a half of extraordinary courage and opening past her resistance more and more. Very close to her, working with her exactly, almost exactly a year ago, this story occurred. It wasn't a story then, it's only a story now. Behan had uh, worked with many people who had done a lot of healing. And as she saw this recurrence of cancer, she sensed that Something had to be done about it, something more intense. And she called on various people who she knew to be healers. So really fine people, people who had been very useful to others in the past and who she had a lot of trust in, a lot of confidence in their ability to open up and let through that which, the energy which brings things into harmony. Healers, people who could get out of the way of themselves sufficiently to let who they were came through, come through. They did a healing circle around her. She could feel the energy. People acknowledged the potency of that period, those hours. A week later, she broke out in 30 new tumors. And she realized her healing was to die. That death was her healing. That it had, the energy had done its work. That it had created the harmony. It had in the process of her evolution and that that was her step, her next participation in her process. Her story is one of someone who, through the teaching of cancer, came more and more and more and more into herself, came through the denial and the anger and the depression and the, not that those things weren't there at times, but that there was more and more relationship to space, that the context was changing, that her attitude toward those things were changing, that the spirit of what was happening was more meaningful to her. 
that the tragedy was becoming more grace, more learning, more opening, more of an experience of her true nature. Felt like death was very close at one point, and she called her loved ones together. And there was her son, her ex-husband, her sister, her brother, and her sister-in-law, and I, in a house in Marin County. And she said that uh, her sister's here. Uh, she said she was going to die on March 15th, March 15th, or March 12th. So, in fact, at one point, I couldn't be there. And to get everybody together, she had to hold on. She said there was a time when one evening, several days before, when she had to really hold on that she was so close to death. She wanted everyone to be there. She wanted to say goodbye. She wanted to finish the work and go on consciously, as consciously as possible, to pass through that portal. That night, she came down into the living room, the body very wasted from cancer, very thin said goodbye to her son and her ex-husband, brothers and sisters and sister-in-law, went up to her room. The next morning she woke up and said, I'm not dead. Well, it's pretty soon. More playing with her son during the day, at night coming down in a very clear space. A lot of wisdom coming through. Goodbye. She goes up to her room. Next morning, she wakes up. What's going on? Can't I die consciously? I mean, I've been so conscious with this whole thing. Can't I die consciously? I hear of how so many beings have been able to just let go. You hear about it in many of the native traditions where people will call loved ones and dear ones from long, long away. Clans and other parts of the territory that they inhabit. Sometimes it'll take them days or even weeks to get together. Person will say goodbye, and there goes grandma, all gone. Like we have a movie about that that we may show where a fellow calls everybody together for his 95th birthday party. At the end of the party, he leaves. Behan say, I don't understand. What's, what is, what's the teaching in this? A lot of confusion and more pain. But she's playing the edge of the pain. She's not knocking herself out. It starts going on for day after day after day. She's getting weaker. There'll be periods around three and four of the night when death and Jesus is standing in the room with her. And she just doesn't understand. And at first I'm with her all during the day and we're talking. And then it gets to be after about a week that my work with her is just the, I'm sleeping on the floor next to her bed. Uh, my work is like the first hour in the morning, first half hour in the morning, just to see the context of, ah, more letting go. Not the patience that waits for something to happen, but the patience of just here, just this. The patience of constancy, the here it is, just this much, that patience. 